Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today we continue our series, Micah's Message of Hope. So let's turn in our Bibles to Micah chapter 6, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, Why We Need a Savior. It has more than on one occasion been said that Christians have an obsession with sin. And the more secular you become, the more you lose that sense of sin and the more concerned you are with fulfillment and self-actualization. Well, it's also been said that in the last several decades, that in order to make the Christian message more palatable to the modern mind, that the focus needs to shift on fulfilling your potential rather than dealing with a sin problem. Your problem, at least as it is now stated by some, is that you're not fulfilled and that you notice that you've got a void in your life, which is a God-sized hole that can be filled only with God. Now that, I think, is a half-truth. Sin does produce in us a dysfunction, a sense that something's wrong and that regardless of what we have tried, we can't seem to fix it. And so I'm not arguing that this emphasis is essentially untrue, but I am arguing that it is in danger of skirting around the issue that is central to the gospel. You see, the central issue is that you're God's creation. You've rebelled and committed treason against your creator. Sin is law-breaking. God has commanded, we have refused. He has shown us what is good, and we've rejected it and chosen what is evil. God is provoked. And furthermore, it's important not to have God as your enemy. He's all-powerful. He's righteous without any unrighteousness. And so the greatest need that we have is to be reconciled to a provoked and incensed, fully righteous God. And the rest of our problems really do stem from that central reality. And that's why the Christmas message is essential. God so loved the world, this God-hating world, that in compassion he sent his son. Christmas is the celebration that we, the human race, who deserved only wrath and justice, have instead, because of the gracious hand of God, received mercy and salvation. And that's the message of the entire Bible. And so when we come to Micah chapter 6 in our ongoing study of Micah's Christmas message of hope, we move backwards from the hope of the reign of the Messiah to again studying the reason why it's so necessary for a Messiah to come. Micah chapter 6 presents us with a picture of a courtroom. The nation of Judah is brought to trial. It's been indicted for sins against God. And in the first five verses, we read the indictment. And then in verses 6 to 8, we hear the case for the defense. Hasn't God asked too much of us? Isn't he expecting something of us that we can't fulfill? How can we be guilty if he's asking for us something so hard that we can't actually do it? And in this section, God will respond to this defense and show us what is required of the nation that's not too hard at all. And then in the rest of the chapter, from verses 9 to the end, all the way to the end of the chapter, which is verse 16, we have God declaring that because he is righteous, he will bring justice on the sinner. Chapter 6, of course, is not the end of the book. I mean, eventually, Michael will go back to his main message, a message we find in chapter 7 and verse 18. Who is like you, asks Micah, pardoning iniquity, passing over transgression. That we will get to as we get to chapter 7. But truth be told, if we get there too quickly, we will fail to understand the value of grace. 
unless we paint the picture of our sins as dark as it can be, will not value grace. Jesus said that the one who is forgiven much loves much, but the one who is forgiven little loves little. And might I add with temerity that the one who imagines his or her sins to be anything but an overwhelming crime, that person will always love little. So let's investigate the nature of the indictment that God brings against his people. And I'm reading Micah 6, 1 to 5. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth, for the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery, and I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember what Bala, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you might know the righteous acts of the Lord. Now, the participants of this trial include, first, of course, the Lord, then Israel, and then the entire created order who will hear the indictment. So we imagine a courtroom that's jammed full, not with people. It's people who are being charged, sure enough. Rather, however, it's jammed full of the creation that God has made, a creation that is made for the glory of God and the defendant who is charged with refusing to glorify God. What a scene it is. Verse 3 begins with a question. O my people, how have I wearied you that you have become tired of me? That is, why do you abandon the covenant I made with you? Are you able to articulate why it is that you've gone after other gods? And then the works of God are declared. First, God redeemed Israel from the house of Egyptian slavery. And of course, we know that Israel could never have freed themselves. The Egyptians were far too strong. Had God not taken the initiative and sent Moses devastating Egypt with 10 plagues, and then he sent a pillar of fire to separate the attacking Egyptian charioteers from Israel, and then he parted the Red Sea and the powerful Egyptian chariots and their riders were drowned in the sea. No human being could have done that. Had God not taken initiative and had God not done the work, Israel would have remained in slavery and rightly so, they were sinners, but God had mercy. Second, Micah mentions the deliverers God sent, Moses, Aaron the priest, Miriam to lead the women of the camp. Micah also mentions one important event. It happened after Israel had sinned by making a calf idol and substituting it for God, and it happened after Israel had refused to enter the promised land at Kadesh Barnea. See, by that time, the redeemed people of God had sinned grievously against the God who had saved them. And then there was this Moabite king named Balak, who decided he would devise a means to curse the people of God. So he hires Balaam, a badly compromised prophet of God, to come and curse Israel. And by that time, we can say this with certainty, that they deserve to be cursed. But Micah mentions this incident to remind Israel that God informed the enemies of Israel that even Balaam could not curse the nation whom God had chosen to bless. And then Micah mentions one more incident, and that one occurred you know, on the journey from Shittim to Gilgal. And we find that in Numbers 25. They were in Shittim, and the people decided to engage in sexual sin with the prostitutes from Moab along with the worship of the gods of Moab, and this with the very nation that had hired Balaam the false prophet to curse them. 
See, by now, God should have destroyed Israel, but he didn't. He appointed Phineas to put an end to this sin. Indeed, there were so many sinful acts, each one along the way, that should have destroyed Israel. But God had been merciful on each occasion and saved his people. One would have thought that the people would remember the love of God and then respond in kind, but they did not. They had become weary of God, tired of him. They were looking for other gods and goddesses. And that's the indictment. And now we come to the second section of Micah chapter 6. That's the place where Israel responds to the indictment. So I'm reading Micah 6, verses 6 to 7. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings and calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? So did you notice the response? The response deals with what it takes for the sinner to be acceptable before God. Well, the people say, suppose that we agree that in spite of God's kindness to us, we've sinned. So what are we supposed to do? And might I add, that's our question as well. See, the reality is there are preachers today who teach, well, I used to be a sinner, now I'm saved, and I'm the righteousness of God in Christ. So I'm no longer a sinner, they say. Let me respond to that. When the Bible speaks about our righteousness after our conversion, it's not speaking about our righteousness. Rather, it's speaking about Christ's righteousness, which was imputed to us or charged to our account. Let me restate that. We aren't righteous. Christ is righteous, and his righteousness is credited to us. It's an alien righteousness. It didn't come from you or I. It came from God's evaluation of his son on his record. His record is attributed to us. That's how we're righteous in Christ. No, no, we haven't attained righteousness. We have sinned just as others have as well. Second, the Bible in 1 John 1, 8, speaking to Christians says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. That is, in that sense, we're not unlike Israel. In spite of the amazing grace of God given to us through the sufferings of the cross, we still sin against God. And therefore, what are we to do? What does God require of us? Is he asking something of us that's harder than can be accomplished? Back to the Bible Canada isn't just a ministry, but a community of like-minded followers of Jesus who have a passion to see God's Word faithfully taught across the nation. To that end, we wanted to take a second to thank all of you who engage with this ministry through your comments, feedback, words of encouragement, and even biblical questions. It means so much when you, you take the time out of your busy days to share your thoughts. Your feedback helps us to grow, improve, and tailor our content to better serve you on your faith journey. It also helps get our programs in front of more eyes, allowing God's unfailing truths to speak into even more lives. So we encourage you to check out our YouTube and social media pages and to leave a comment or a question today. We thank you in advance. For more information or to bless the ministry with a gift, just visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. How shall I come before the Lord, ask the people of Israel? And at first, as we read through this, the question seems legitimate. 
Shall I come with burnt offerings and with calves a year old? And at first glance, that seems to be the solution. I mean, isn't that what God said? So you might remember the words of David after he had sinned dreadfully. Psalm 51 verse 16 records him saying, For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with burnt offering. See, how can David say that, given that there's a very detailed picture of what is required to be done in the temple from the law? But a careful study of the law indicates that the sacrifices in the temple dealt primarily with forgiveness because of ritual uncleanness, things like touching a dead body and a host of other matters that dealt with outward cleansing. Yeah, there were other things that could be forgiven, but those dealt with situations where the sinner could make restitution. Let's say someone had stolen another person's property. Well, restoration would have to be made so that the person offended would be made whole, and then a fifth would be added as a penalty. That is, pay back everything you've stolen, then pay a fifth more as a penalty for your crime, and then, and only after that's done, can you go and offer sacrifices to God and be forgiven. But the big sins, like murder or idolatry and other high-handed sins, those things brought death, and no sacrifice in the temple would atone for that. And getting back to Psalm 51 in David's prayer of repentance, we might remember his plaintive cry, pointing out just how severe his sin actually was. Listen to verse 4. David says, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. See, that's serious. I didn't just sin by stealing a neighbor's ox or something like that. No, no. David says, I have offended the infinitely glorious and holy God, and for that reason, I deserve to be condemned. Temple sacrifices weren't designed to handle David's sin. Only judgment would come. So we get back to Micah chapter 6. The sinful nation seems to be aware of this. And so rather than like David, who appealed to the loving kindness and the mercy of God, the questions that the people in Micah's day ask turn sarcastic. Just how much sacrifice does God require, they say. Would God be pleased with thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of oil? Oh, the cheekiness of that question. It's like saying, how much sacrifice is required? And then, you know, the cheekiness is not enough. The questioner adds, you know, if God's not satisfied with thousands of rams, perhaps he wants my firstborn in sacrifice. Will that satisfy God? That's the defense from sinful Israel. What God wants is never enough, they say. Let me suggest a contemporary example of the same thing. You know, I once watched an interview with John Cleese, of all people, and he was discussing Christianity and its impact on England. Very interesting conversation. He agreed that Christianity had done good to the nation. Then he said that the Christian faith was just too hard and too demanding to keep. Well, that's exactly what ancient Israel said. And to that, listen to the words of God as he corrects Israel. Micah 6, verse 8, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Now, most of us are familiar with this verse. One commentator called this verse the finest summary of the content of practical religion found in the Old Testament. And the old Jewish rabbis used to call this verse the one-line summary of the entire law. Well, let's look at the three particulars, shall we? God tells man to do justice. That is, he requires that on a national level, evildoers are punished and the innocent are protected. 
Now, in our day, Western nations, we also have refused this. As an example, we abort innocent unborn children who have done nothing deserving of death. And yet, sometimes we give murderers a slap on the wrist and argue for leniency. You see, God demands justice so that the innocent are protected and the evildoers are condemned. See, the second thing that God requires is that we love kindness. So a better word would be mercy. You know, the Hebrew word here is the word hesed, which means the love of God in the covenant. And that means that God has made a binding agreement with us, and we are to offer mercy on the basis of the covenant that God has made. The third thing that God requires is that we walk humbly with him. That's the opposite of arrogance. Humility requires that we acknowledge that, look, we didn't create God. He created us. God's not dependent on us. We're dependent on God. Humility requires of us that we bend the knee before God and confess, not my will, but yours be done. To say that my ways are evil, but your ways are good, that's a humble statement. But there's the opposite, which is arrogance. Arrogance is saying that we demand that God approve of our ways, that we judge God, that we require that God submit to our ways and not his. That's arrogance. So these three things that Micah mentions, they're not undoable. They are doable, and they are required. And so what is required was that Israel come before God and confess that they had not done that which God had demanded, and they come with deep contrition like David, seeking mercy in the covenant. Stop being sassy. Stop justifying your sins. Stop making excuses and stop saying it's too hard. Stop all of your reasons. Bend the knee before God. He has told you, O man, what is good. And so the human objection to the indictment is defeated. And with that, Israel is indicted for her sins. And now come the charges. And the charge begins with a word of warning, Micah 6 verse 9. The voice of the Lord cries to the city. It is the sound of wisdom to fear your name. Hear of the rod and of him who appointed it. Wow, think of what's just been said. If you want a word of advice or if you want to be wise, act out of your own self-interest and listen to this. Hear of the rod and of him who appointed it. The rod is God's means of punishment. Do you know that God has said to sinners, he said, the soul that sins, it will die. Did that get your attention? I hope it did. You have a date with destiny. It's with the judgment seat of God. It awaits you and I, and it's the judgment of eternal death. Listen, this is coming, and hear of him, the righteous one who has appointed such a rod. Are you stronger than he? And then God has Israel's attention, and now comes a series of questions that God wants Israel to consider. Verses 10 and 11, can I forget any longer the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked and the scant measure that is accursed? Shall I acquit a man with wicked scales and with a bag of deceitful weights? Boy, that's an important question. Will God look the other way while people cheat one another? We know the answer to that. Now verse 12, your rich men are full of violence. Your inhabitants speak lies. Their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. Translation, the evil rich among you, they're going to harm anyone, and they're going to lie to hide their own evil. And whenever they speak, they seek to mislead. And with that, God pronounces judgment, verses 13 to 15. Therefore, I strike you with grievous blow, making you desolate because of your sins. You shall eat but not be satisfied, and there shall be hunger within you. 
You shall put away, but not preserve. And what you preserve, I will give to the sword. You will sow, but not reap. You shall tread olives, but not anoint yourselves with oil. You shall tread grapes, but not drink wine. See, that's God's sentence to those who take advantage of others to get what they want. God will deprive them of what they want. The more they use lies and unethical business practices to suit themselves, the more all their wealth will be stripped from them. You know, some of us reading this might be tempted to say, wow, I wish that were true, but think of it, it is. Does not God control the weather and the crops and the abundance or the lack of it in the harvest? Think also that at any time God controls the economy of every single country. Well, that's but a prequel of the great act to follow, which is the final judgment, in which God judges all the nations as well as each individual person. And that's the point of the gospel. You can't get to the good news until you face the bad news. God has given you doable commands, but you and I, with our fists raised to heaven, have rebelled against the one true God. You, my friend, just like me, desperately, oh, so desperately need a Savior. What's the Christmas story? Well, rightly told, it's the story that a Savior has come. He has come to redeem us from the evil which we live in. A Redeemer has been sent, but we did not earn or deserve Him. God has given Him in grace. We are wise to seek Him and to call out to Jesus, save me from my sins. Thanks, John. You know, I I think one of the turnoffs and maybe the reason why the term sin isn't heard much even in the church is that people are uncomfortable with the idea that they are sinful. How do we address that? Yeah, they are uncomfortable. I'm I'm uncomfortable. You're uncomfortable. We're all uncomfortable. And uh, the reality is we, we, we tend to want to think of ourselves in the most positive terms so that when the judgment of God comes to us and says that you're a sinner and you're unworthy, of the kingdom of God, and uh, that you will fail at the judgment. I mean, there's a, a deep sense of rebellion that happens. Who And we, we say to God, I mean, who do you think you are uh, that you would, you know, talk to me that way? And of course, the answer is God thinks he's God, right? Um, but it, the reality is that God has given his law, and his law is his demand on all of creation and especially the crown of his creation. And we have failed and therefore we violated God's laws and we stand guilty. And that's something we have to come to terms with. It's the bad news before the good can come. Thanks, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we conclude our series, Micah's Message of Hope, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Hi, Dr. John Newfelt here. Right away, thank you so much for listening, supporting, and praying for Back to the Bible Canada. This year, I've been privileged to share God's Word around the world, and I've never been more convinced of the importance of the mission of Back to the Bible Canada. But I know this, I wouldn't be here, and this program wouldn't exist without your help. Truly, it's such a joy to study God's Word with you. This month, the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada share a goal of raising $517,000 by December 31st. Can I ask if you're able to consider a gift to support this ministry? It would mean so much, not just to us, but to so many in desperate need of truth. 
Call us, would you, at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. And from all of us at Back to the Bible Canada, bless you as you celebrate our coming Savior.